Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at phoebe.substack.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. Today's episode is a conversation with Anna Kirova, CEO of Field, which describes itself as a dating app for open-minded individuals. Founded in London in 2014, the app now has hundreds of thousands of users worldwide and offers over 20 sexuality and gender identity options, making it the go-to for anyone seeking a connection beyond the heterosexual, gender-normative end of the dating spectrum. I had a fantastic time talking to Anna about the way that our romantic and sexual lives are rapidly evolving, as well as how broader cultural and economic shifts play into the ways we have sex and fall in love. I hope you enjoy our conversation. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a a pleasure to be here. You're based in Portugal, is that right? In Porto. Okay. How long have you been there? It's been four years now, officially. Wow. And before that, you were in London? Yeah, for about nine I bet. Do you miss it? Do you miss it? Yeah, I do. I do. I keep coming back. Um, But life here is just, it's just the nature, you know, it's the nature, the vibe, the energy. Sunshine. Yeah. All of those things. So, um, you know, we're here today to talk partly, primarily about Field, the the app of which you are the CEO. Mm -hmm. And um, can you... In your own words, describe to me what Field is for anyone who might not be partic- uh, familiar with it. It's a space where open-minded people meet like-minded people. That's okay. the closest we've gotten to a definition. That's a good tagline. Um, you're originally from Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, you've given us a very broad definition of field. I suppose a lot of people familiar with will think of it in terms of an app where people can explore their sexuality yeah, and maybe experiment with different forms of sexuality with, as you say, open-minded people. I wondered if we could start out with you sort of telling me a little bit about, about what kind of ideas of sexuality you grew up around in Bulgaria. What was your sort of upbringing and the way you thought about things like that? Mm. I didn't know there's anything else in straight until maybe early in my teen years, maybe when I was yeah. like 13, 12, 13, when um, there were rumors that a very famous singer um, was into men. He was, a, he was a man and he was into men, so he was gay, but mm. it wasn't, it wasn't anything I could relate to really. Um, mm. But when I started really experiencing my sexuality I was very fascinated by women um mm-hmm. and I was um I remember having fear that I will end up not being straight when I started yeah. understanding what sexuality is I thought it's a very static thing and you just you're born with it and it's what it is for the rest of your life and yeah. your teen years are when you're going to discover it that was the that was right. a story I had. No one had told me that story explicitly. Yeah. Just sort of like 
what I inferred from everything around me. So mm. that's the image I grew up with. And when I had a boyfriend, eventually, um, later in my teen years, I just remember a relief that, oh, yes. okay, well, I'm straight. I qualify. Right. I'm quote unquote normal now. Exactly. So that gives, I think that gives a taste of what environment I grew up with. Is Bulgaria quite uh, conventional, traditional in terms of its culture? Very, yeah. Right. I don't know much about the culture there, but... I mean, it's becoming a bit more open these days. Um, I haven't lived there for, I don't know, almost 15 years. Um, Mm. So I don't want to give any statements that don't... Mm resonate with people who actually live there but yeah it's quite traditional especially if you compare it to london where i think i actually became a person um mm. there is a you know there are gender roles that people um stick to the language isn't as flexible to support you know um yeah. different structures or novelty or anything like that or experimentation so um yeah yeah Language is actually something I I want to explore with you in this conversation because reading up on field, looking at your website and just thinking about the kind of broader issues that field sort of taps into, I feel like language and identity are so interlinked and very um, influential on each other, but maybe we'll come back to that. So you moved to London to study, is that right? Yeah. And how old were you at that time? I had just turned 19 when I moved, mm. I think. Um, and I studied graphic design in yeah. Southeast London. Um, so that was back in 2010, maybe. <laughs> Feels like a long time ago now, right? Very long time ago, yeah. <laughs> Different world in some ways. Mm. Um, especially, I think, in terms of like, you know, I feel like we're a similar age, both millennials. And when I think about the sort of like, I mean, I grew up in the middle of London, so there was a lot of representation of different sexualities and around me from a young age. One of my mom's best friends is gay and, you know, has a daughter who's one of my best friends. So I think I was aware, you know, I was always aware that there were, there were more options than heterosexuality. But when I think about the language and that people used when I was in school, you know, to describe transsexual people or, you know, even the kind of homophobic slurs that were being widely used when I was a teenager compared to the way that teenagers, Gen Z communicate now about sexuality and gender. It's absolutely, I feel like it's one of the biggest sort of social cultural revolutions of our, of our time. Mm, That's that's a bold statement. I don't, I mean, I can't think of something that is more where there's been, uh, how do I express this? Just like the language, the place of discussions around sexuality and gender. I'm aware I'm saying this from, you know, still in London, having lived in the US and in New York and LA, which are progressive cities. You know, I've only ever lived in progressive strongholds. I'm very aware this is not like this everywhere in the world. I don't know. I mean, what, tell me a bit about when you moved to London and you said this is where you became a person, like, what do you think you encountered here that enabled you to step into yourself in that way? Mm. So first of all, I want to say I agree with you that I do think it's, this is probably one of the most significant cultural revolutions of our time. Mm. Um, mm. Absolutely. And in terms like for me, the way that I experienced it and why I related to my 
time in London. It was just a perfect storm. Um, my, the time of my life, um, the fact that the UK was still in the EU and it was available as a destination for me. Like right yeah. now, it would be very, it would be much trickier, you know, for people mm. from countries like Bulgaria to come to the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we've regressed in other ways. If we've made progress in some areas, we've regressed in other ways. But that's another conversation. We won't get started on Brexit. Yeah, no, Sorry. but I have to like acknowledge how sometimes yeah. I think about it, it's like Jesus, it's just like everything had aligned for for all of this to happen. Yeah, um, and I think I, I I wasn't accepted in the schools which I really wanted to study in, which were like yeah. more prestigious design schools. Mm. Um, some of them in central London, some of them in West London. Um, mm. I wasn't preparing to study design at all. It was like a last minute decision. And the only school right. which really accepted me was uh, University of Greenwich. And at the time, the design campus wasn't in Greenwich. It was in close to Lewisham, like really far southeast, mm-hmm. past Lewisham. Mm-hmm. And my onboarding to London really was in communities of people of color, of um, people who don't have like a lot of means Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, live on benefits. Mm -hmm. And seeing that layer of London was the only layer I had access Mm -hmm. to. Really, That's what Mm -hmm. I entered. And I felt so welcome and accepted as I am in a way that now, you know, now that I've lived in central London, I've lived in, you know, like whatever zone one and two, and I don't know if I would have felt the same way if I had Mm. landed there, like coming from Bulgaria, you're like very few people can afford London life from there. It's just Mm -hmm. like the, the culture was one of acceptance and it was so multicultural and everyone was hustling and, no one asked me where I'm from or why I'm there or who I am really. It was more like, okay, we're, we're vibing. Let's go out. That's the sort of attitude I was surrounded by. And I had friends who were transitioning friends who were um, coming out and they were just, it was a completely different world, a completely different world. I never had such experiences in Bulgaria. Um, and I think it made me realize that being yourself is possible because where I grew up previously didn't really feel like I can be myself and be a productive and happy and healthy part of society. Mm-hmm. It just felt like I'll always be in the way for someone if I am myself. Yeah. Um, and that also I wouldn't really be accepted. Um, right. Yeah, and that just dissolved. It disappeared mm. within weeks. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. London mm. doing a good job there. I mean, it is, as you say, that, you know, people complain a lot about the UK and London and that there are downsides for sure, but it definitely, I feel, is still one of the most progressive places Absolutely. in the world on so many levels. Absolutely. How does that compare now with your experience of living in Portugal? Um... I mean, I live in Portugal in quite a, I think, secluded life here. Yeah. I travel a lot, so my life isn't very integrated with the local mm-hmm. communities. Um, 
I don't speak the language very well, and it's hard to experience the more authentic local life the way that I could experience it in London because there was no right. language barrier. Right. Um, I think I think the communities that I have been exposed to here are very open minded, actually. Yeah quite liberal and curious. Mm. Um, I think LGBTQ communities feel quite safe in Porto and in Portugal. Mm. Um, I think there is a strong position, like women in particular have strong positions in society, but it can't compare it to the UK. Like there's still a lot of, you know, uh, mm. institutional racism to um, people of of color or people from Latin America here. Yeah. Um, so there, there are issues for sure, which I don't right. fully grasp, but it doesn't, it's hard to compare it to London. I think yeah. with London, your difference is very celebrated and mm. you can be, you can make a big deal out of it or not. Whereas here, I think there's more of an established way of being. Right, right, know. right. Yeah, no, it's hard. To, it's just interesting to think about the nuances. Again, I, I've only lived, I've been privileged to live in these bubbles, essentially. So yeah. for me, it's like, oh, you know, progress. And um, But then I'm sure if you go to like certain parts of the US, even like obviously it's very, very, it's moving backwards. Um, so it was while you were in London that you and your um, partner, you came up with the concept for Phil, which was originally called Thrinder. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, tell me a bit about the inception of it. Uh, I know you've talked about it a lot, um, but it's just interesting to know like how, like what was, what was the moment it was born out of? Mm. I think it all started because I fell for a woman and that's, yeah. it was the first time I had actual feelings or maybe the first time I allowed myself to have feelings for a woman because right. because of what I said previously that I just, mm-hmm. I wanted to be straight. So I did everything yeah. I can. Yeah. Um, and it felt incredible but also very confusing because it wasn't a case of either or so i would either now i fall for her so i'm gonna leave my partner Mm. it was a it's this it's this other type or like the same type of no i don't know if it's the same or it's different but it was a type of love or attraction i felt which felt really compatible with my entire life and Mm. it was very difficult to comprehend because we grow up with these stories of the one and Mm. whenever you feel good with someone in a relationship you're like okay so they must be the one now so Mm. that's it that's the one um and you start trying to make it work to make sure that it is the one and and then suddenly it turns out that i felt like i had the one but then i had another one (laughs) (laughs) It just made no sense. And it also, the other one was also a person of the same sex as mine. Um, And that made it even more confusing. And I told my partner, I told Dimo, um, and I said, you know, I I understand if you want to leave me because maybe I'm gay and maybe I fell in love and now I'm going to fall out of love with you at some point. But Mm. it's not now. It was just a very messy conversation. I wrote a letter because I couldn't express clearly when I speak. Um, 
when I'm going to try to speak about it. And he, he was very receptive in a way that I never imagined possible. He said, why don't you date people while we're together? What's going to happen? And that just blew my mind. <laughs> mm. It's crazy how deep our conditioning runs, right? Like, yeah. like you couldn't even fathom that there was yeah. another way. Yeah. As you say, we're so, the idea of the one and of romantic, you know, um, monogamous partnership is so deeply ingrained in our culture that it doesn't even occur to people that they could approach love and relationships from a different angle or it does occur to some people, a lot of people, but those people don't really have any sort of mainstream platform until very, very recently. Yeah, no, it's true. It, I think it's the idea of exclusivity, which just never, in hindsight, I never understood. It's like a little bit, I mean, we have it in many ways, right? We talk about the best mm-hmm. friend mm-hmm. and I don't know how you were when I, when you were growing up, but when I was growing up, I, I was meant to have one best friend, right? You know, like it's one, Yeah. you don't yeah. have two best friends. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Although I don't, I mean, even now I don't, I don't really subscribe to the idea of one best friend. It seems really bizarre to me actually right. to think that there would just be one person that you rely on all For the everything. time. You know, you have a, I, I feel like I have a, so, a range of friends who I serve a different purpose in their life and they serve, you know, we all, we all serve a different purpose in each other's lives. Exactly. I think it's that, that's the, that's, the, that's the core of um, mm-hmm. all of this is that for some reason, I feel like at least when I was growing up and I don't think it's isolated to Bulgaria. I think it's, it was a, it's probably a generational thing in those times, like in the nineties, um, maybe when it's no eighties, when it started to really change, but mm. it's this idea of a one way to be. You know, yeah. like there's one way to be happy, one way to be in a relationship, one way to succeed professionally, whatever. There was like a, it's almost like a mold and mm-hmm. you do your best to fit within it. And it's one mold. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very heteronormative structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now over the last, especially over the last like maybe 10 years with tech making so many lives available for you to just observe there's yeah. so many ways to be happy it just doesn't right it doesn't have to be one it, it it's infinite and it expands all the time and there are infinite yeah. combinations and you need to tap into what makes you feel good what makes the people in your life feel good you know mm-hmm. certain principles around respect and desire or pleasure that mm-hmm. are driving rather than descriptive descriptors like look this way act this way become yeah. this yeah again I, it kind of blows my mind you know that we're at this stage in the world and yet we still abide broadly by a very narrow a very narrow paradigm of what life should look like especially if you're someone who identifies heterosexual it's like in a way I mean, of course, queer people have pioneered alternate modes of living for for eternity and for dec in recent history. There's decades of you know you can find examples of queer communities. You know the idea of chosen family, the idea of communal living, the idea of mutual aid, the idea of 
all alternative modes of child rearing, all these models. If you look at queer communities, you can usually find some precedent for it. And it's like straight people are like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. You guys have been onto something all this time because I think, as you say, uh, very accurately, I think being able to see other people's lives has given people a greater consciousness of their own and sort of maybe realizing that actually they don't really like these um, narrow lifestyles that they've set up for themselves and maybe they feel trapped and maybe they're not, it doesn't feel like a full expression of humanity. And again, like queer people are like, yeah, we, we've been onto this guys, but it's what I find interesting, maybe, maybe because I am heterosexual is to witness that unfolding, you know, that moment of like slow dawning of awakening in heterosexual people being like, oh, okay, maybe I don't want to just marry one person and sleep with them for the rest of my life and sit in a house together. Maybe there's different models. And obviously with something, with a platform like Field, people have opportunities to explore that. I was thinking about, you know, the fact that you came up with it while you're in London, a moment that sounds like it was quite liberating for you. But now, and that was also a time when sort of apps were, you know, nascent form compared to what they are now, especially social media apps, like the, the ability it's given people to connect with like-minded people all around the world. And so Mm. it doesn't have to be isolated in these small, progressive urban bubbles because you have users globally, of course, but also outside of urban centers. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And we have like, we've worked out ways to allow people to connect to people even virtually. Um, exactly because of that, because what you're talking about is it's absolutely right. Like you have movements that maybe have started from these bubbles where people probably were able to coexist and create and almost innovate what the social fabric can look like and what Mm. direction it could take and what textures it could take. Um, And then that spreads out thanks to technology to Mm. places where people maybe aren't able to um, otherwise be exposed to. Mm. Um, And that makes the whole revolution even bigger and more impactful. Yeah. Cause you can like, um, you can, as you said, you can sort of, even if you're say outside London, you could sort of zone in your, um, geolocation as if you were there so that you can, mm-hmm. if there's more people there to connect with or wherever you are in the world. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about, you've got this glossary on your website, which even if you're not a user of field, I think is a really amazing reference mm-hmm. because you've got, you know, a, a really, really broad um, range of definitions for gender and, and sexuality that are really clarifying, actually. Um, of course, as you say, the language around gender and sexuality is such a big part of it and it's shifting all the time and people are, you know, it, and it's also really sensitive, right? Like the terms that people use to identify themselves or what choose to be identified by whether that's pronouns or ways of uh describing sexuality are are really really important to them you know if you misgender someone now it's mortifying you know like you people are learning like to do that 
And um, it again, that's I feel like that's been a, a big and quite quite recent shift. You know that people put their pronouns on their email signatures, and it's a, it's a, it's moved really quickly. Can you talk to me a bit about how you think about language and how you think language can help help progress what's happening now? Because I feel like being able to name something it makes me think about like a really good writer will be able to articulate a feeling that you've had, but you couldn't put words to yourself. And I feel like in the same way, if you read this sort of glossary of terms, you might find something on there and you're like, oh, that's, that's exact. I I have this exact quite niche, you know, relationship with my sexuality. And I just didn't know that there was a term for it, let alone other people experiencing it. Mm. I think um, language has always been, has always fascinated me personally um, Mm. because exactly of its ability to almost transform how you experience the world. We're quite, um, I mean, we have, we rely on our intellectual interpretation of what's happening to us all the time. and the tools we have for it are language. Like I, I weren't, I wasn't taught to be spiritual, you know, or like to check in with uh, energies or anything like that. Like maybe some people have been, Um, Mm. I was taught to try to explain and be logical. And I remember vividly when I was, um, I studied German in high school. And I remember when it, when I started feeling fluent, that, Mm there was something about expressing myself and my feelings in that language, which didn't feel good to me at that time. In German. And in in German. Like, I mm. don't know. Like now it's different. Now it's, it's, it, I'm in a different state of mind, but I remember it. And I trusted that feeling. Like I was, yeah. I was like, I don't, I don't connect to this way of expressing and seeing mm. the world. And it was literally just structures and words and sounds that felt um, hard to relate to. And I think I'm using this as an example for, at least for me, how sensitive we actually are to this. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we started building fields, I remember um, we wanted to be very intentional about what sort of words we use because all of the other apps seem to be, and they still are actually, but Mm -hmm. it's like this, there's this attitude in tech of um, it's either very friendly to the point Mm -hmm. of being a bit infantile or um, like kind of childish without needing to be, Mm -hmm. um, or is just so dry and matter of fact that yeah. it feels any magic. And yeah. <clears throat> it was really, it was quite a strange thing that uh, we did. Even like in our early days, we worked with um, uh, an editor. She's yeah. on our team. Um, she's leading our content strategy right now. Um, and she sort of started implementing like an attitude to language almost in the team like mm. we were 
just experimenting and thinking out loud. It wasn't a strategy per se, but it, it, it actually was like now in hindsight, it was, it was a very, uh, intentional decision to introduce, mm -hmm. um, a certain approach in the same way we do with design. Um, we really believe in, and I really believe in the aesthetics and being thoughtful about how you present what you say and all of that without mm -hmm. controlling, but just putting thought behind it. I think it changes how you perceive what's presented. Like if field mm -hmm. was some super friendly, like, Hey, hold hands together and let's go out. Like, how can you, how can you tap into the like dark mysterious side of sexuality, which is equally important as the one that's fun and joyful and bright. Like mm. you can't have one without the other. It's not like we all know the good sex that we can have has that mysterious layer to it and yeah. you have to leave space for it. But at the same time, you shouldn't necessarily make it, you know, black and red and lacy because then that <laughs> Because yeah. <laughs> then that goes in a whole other direction. Right. Um, so that's a very long roundabout way of saying that um, we invest a lot in language and how, who uses it, how it's used. Um, we work with published writers um, and it's, and up and coming writers alike. It's very, very important how and what is said. Um, yeah. It changes how you perceive it, to your point. Mm. Mm. I read a, a that very um, in-depth profile on Field in the New Yorker, and I think it was published in 2021, which mm. is a fabulous piece of PR <laughs> for the incredible. I, I mean, I know obviously I know it was an authentic account, but wow, I was like, okay, if you were thinking about joining this app, this would this would sell you on it, um, which talks about one woman's experience of using. Um, using the app during the pandemic. Um, and, and she talks a lot about all the, the, uh, details that are inbuilt that help, I suppose, not just women, but particularly women feel safe while using it. And it made me think a lot about, I'm sure you're aware of this because it's very much, you know, your domain. I know that field isn't a dating app, but there is a lot of discourse right now about how awful dating apps have become. Um, and like a big thing, you know, a big sort of meme on Twitter is people screen grabbing interactions that they've had, you know, men, and invariably it's men saying atrocious things to women, um, yeah. and women just being like, you know, we live in hell. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I just, uh, yeah, I, I just wondered what your thoughts were on, Again, I know that you don't define it as a dating app, but I guess it is an app for people to connect to each other in an intimate, sexual way. Uh, what your thoughts are on kind of like that broader, what seems to me like a very, this might just be my algorithm, but like a big disillusionment that's happening with uh, the possibilities of human connection through apps right now. Oh. Mm. I think I have my own theory, which then, you know, confirmation bias makes me consistent, continuously yeah. like, see? Yeah. <laughs> and it it's all about, um, I think it all goes back to repression. 
and lacking device and space to explore. Sexuality is a part of us, whether we like it or not. It's like not wanting to have, not wanting to eat or or not wanting to drink. But in contrast with those two, you won't die if you repress your sexuality. So you'll just feel bad (laughs) or you'll start behaving in weird ways. But it is like a current. It is what it is a driving force. Desire is a force. And we're never, instead of having a thoughtful and curious approach to it, we're taught to have uh, more of a default rejection and Mm. suppression and hiding of it. Mm. And the usual narrative is that when you do find the one, then you become sexual and then you can express that privately behind mm. closed doors in your bed, whatever. Mm. That is such a limited and painful um, model to abide by. It's insane. Mm. Like who waits, <laughs> like who waits for that? And also what are the chances of that? staying the same like your sexuality staying the same throughout the whole your whole life i think that's at the core of um these the the disillusionment you're talking about because Mm -hmm. on the other side of that comes you know our capitalist reality where we want to drive consumerism and we sell it through seduction in various ways so Mm -hmm. It's like the the feeling, the desire is being stimulated, but the expression and the search to serve that desire is very often um, not in the right direction because no one gives Mm -hmm. the direction. And I think when you objectify women all the time and then you put them on an app, (laughs) you're going to, you know, there's, and there is no guide and there is no support and there is no education of how... I don't know, courting can look like even like, that's what happens. Um, And on top of that, I think there's just an inherent problem with tech. And it's that uh, for various reasons, you know, venture capital and growth of tech companies over the last five, 10 years has been focused on certain specific metrics as signs of success or as signs of like, uh, I don't know, multiple, uh, like a certain multiple that you'll get at an exit event. And I think that drives a lot of platforms to be very transactional. So, Mm. you know, the people who are building, even if they started building with one intention in order to keep growing and surviving, they start to introduce this like functions internally to be and they result in a more transactional experience for the user mm-hmm. um i don't want to get into the business side of it but i think <laughs> that's what it boils down right. to yeah it's like uh what's that expression the medium is the message the the interaction you have with the tech actually shapes the way you or the sorry the way that the tech is built shapes the way that you act on it and then exactly. given that we all spend so much time on our devices, if you're continuously being encouraged to uh, use certain behaviors when interacting with other humans, that has broader effects. You know, one perfect example of that, I think, is 
how commonplace ghosting is now, you know, that because yeah. we can just text out of the app, put down the phone, people yeah. now don't really sort of, you know, act with sort of decency towards each other and just go, go ghost. And that's, yeah. but that we're still humans and that's still massively like confusing and hurtful when you've had it, especially if you had an intimate experience with someone. And yet it's so, so commonplace now. In, in, insanely common. It's just, but it's again, it's the, to your point, the platforms are built in a way that makes this easier than yeah. saying something. And right. I think we've always had ghosting. Yes. Um, and some probably used know. to be even easier because <laughs> you yeah. couldn't hold anyone down online when they really just decided to go missing on you. Exactly. Yeah. But it's just now the quantity, like the amount of people that you can welcome to your life and then right. can, you know, um, yeah. disappoint you in some way. It's yeah. just bigger and it's more painful because yeah. of the quantity, I think. Yeah, for sure. Like, it's just, you know, like, oh, everyone I meet goes to me. I feel like I hear that a lot, like, you know, or, um, and, and I do think just sort of some, some of what you were saying earlier, it feels like we're at like kind of an inflection point with, again, probably more, I feel like, uh, queer communities have figured a lot of this stuff out a long time ago. And it's interesting to, you know, know now that a lot of the language we use for discussing, for example, ethical non-monogamy or, um, you know, just alternative relationship mm. dynamics is, is language that we've taken from queer communities who came up with ethics and boundaries and guidelines for how to operate in these relationships a long time ago. Um, but it's interesting to me again, probably more so because I am a heterosexual woman with a lot of heterosexual female friends, as well as obviously a lot of queer friends. Um, that there does seem, we seem to be at this sort of, this, a shift, a shift is happening and there's like a lag, which I think is causing all the uh, discontent and the disillusionment, but this sense that like, and I'm sure this is happening for men as well, that the ideas of heteronormative monogamous partnership don't serve us anymore. Obviously a lot of people are deciding not to have children now, which makes them, has a massive impact on the way that people navigate sexuality and relationships if you don't feel that pressure to have a child suddenly mm -hmm. your adult life unfolds in a very different way um and I suppose yeah and having access to to platforms like yours where people can explore this in a in a non-judgmental context I'm just I'm really interested to see how the next 10 years unfold because I think this Sent, I know it sounds absurd, but I was watching the new, the reboot of Sex and the City yesterday and oh, no. it's so bad, but it's interesting to me because, you know, I grew up watching, well, I was a little bit early, but I, I watched the first season, season uh, first run, which was all about, you know, heterosexual relationships between women and often like emotionally unavailable men and whatever. And the new season, you know, Miranda's exploring a relationship with a non-binary person and leaves her husband and all this stuff. And like, to me, that really, um, it, it reflects again, this like moment of awakening that a lot of women are having. It's just interesting to think how that's going to play out in the coming years. Mm, yeah. It's fascinating. Um, I feel so, I don't know about you, but I'm, I, there are so many terrible things happening in the world, yeah. but that part of it makes me so, 
excited and grateful. Um, it, it feels like it's something's moving forward rather than backwards. Yeah. It's just, but then at the same, sorry, go on. Go on. No, no. At the same time, another thing that I think about is the fact that, you know, by all reports, like even though I know um, Field has had massive growth and I think particularly since the pandemic, is that correct? Yeah. It's really interesting because one of the things that New Yorker article explores is how people were, people were hooking up during the pandemic, <laughs> whether they were supposed to or not. And, um, but on the flip side, it's like, I was talking about this with someone yesterday. It's like one half of society found ways to connect and the other half retreated. And I, and I read often that Gen Z and young people aren't really having, well, having sex in much less, much less sex, mm-hmm. far fewer sexual partners. I don't, I'm sure, um, filled the demographic is a little bit older than Gen Z, I would imagine. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. Um, well, how do you think about that? Like just as a person, but also obviously as a, as a CEO, thinking about who's going to populate, um, populate the platform coming in the coming years. Like what, what do you do research into that? Like what were your thoughts and findings? Yeah, we do research, although I think I'd love us to do a thousand times more just because yeah. the anthropologist in me is just uh deeply curious to a fault yeah. um i think maybe a couple of things first in as it relates to field i i've never you know how maybe some tech ceos have a vision of the world i do have a vision of the world yeah. that i would like us to get to but in the same time i'm one person who cares? You know, if the world needs something else and it's not my vision, mm-hmm. then my job as a CEO of this platform, really the way that I see it, my duty is to build for the users, for the people who find value in what we do. Um, mm-hmm. I like the field which served me back mm-hmm. in those days, the, the you know, the fields that we wanted is is now maybe like one of the initial layers of what we've built. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. on top of it is just so much um, that has become possible thanks to the people who've been in the team and have sort of infused the company with their visions and Mm -hmm. also the people who actually use and meet and come to us and are like, oh my God, I I wish I could do this or this is how how we found each other. And you build with that feedback, with that um, information. It's no longer like, so whatever I think feels going to be in mm. 10 years, it will likely be something that is in relationship and in constant growth with the community that actually uses it. Mm. Um, as for the world and where it's going, <clears throat> I I'm a little skeptical of any researchers that are trying to quantify how much sex people have yeah. to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> there is a, um, I think we're still not very comfortable about sex right. at all. So if someone asks yeah. you, like, how much sex do you have? You, your head starts to go places like oh should i say that i have sex once a year to show i'm a pure person Mm. or should i say i have it once a week to show i have a good life and i like i'm kicking ass i don't know like there's so many assumptions and it's still so 
um, integrate, like people see it as, and I see it too. Like I'm, I'm trying to grow out of it, but it's still seen as a status to mm. bring it in. Um, that but I also, but also shameful, like exactly. it's a double edged, uh, sword, right? That you, exactly. you need to be having a lot of sex. Otherwise you're a loser. But also if you're having a lot of sex, you're a slut. <laughs> Precisely. And then when you're asked that question, you have to weigh like, should I be the loser here or should I be the slut? Like which, which one serves you? Right. right. And even, even if let's say data is correct, I think then, and people do self-report with mm. um, accuracy, but then you get into the point of what is sex? Because I think mm. partner sex is one thing. Penetrative sex is one thing. And yeah. sex in general can encompass many versions of sex. Like you have people who don't want to have penetrative sex, but they feel they have a sexual practice because they masturbate mm. and they can report they have sex twice a day, 10 times a day, you know? Mm. And then you have people who um, have a completely different perception of sex. So I think that's why I'm, I don't think we've, we're clear yet. No. But even if it comes out that new generations do have less sex than before, than others let's say that entertain that i do think that um sexuality and sex are not necessarily the same thing so the Mm -hmm. practice of having sex and the experience of sexuality are of course interconnected but they're not the same thing Um, Mm. and you can be sexual and experience and express without necessarily practicing a certain act and Mm. that's what i see in field very often being at the core of healthy connections between certain people where Mm. people are like i'm comfortable to express who i am i'm comfortable to explore my identity and i feel seen as i am and I don't feel like I have to conform to certain standards. I feel like I can mm-hmm. just cross-dress today. And the people I meet on field will be like, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> yeah. What else do you like doing? It's not like, it's not a big deal. And I think that's at the core. And that's where, that's what I feel most excited about is this level of acceptance of people as they come. Um, yeah. And they might transform. Yeah, I think it really the more we talk about it it's just kind of staggering like how sexually immature our culture is in so many ways you know mm-hmm. considering it's literally you know the source of of all humanity is is sex like the the fact that we ha- we're so i feel like we're really at the beginning of or certainly again heterosexual Western cultures. And of course there's variations in approaches to sexuality and gender all around the world. Some people are more, you know, some cultures are really far more progressive on, on a progressive, but just sort of expansive when it comes to concepts of gender. Others are incredibly repressed and backwards when it comes to expressions of sexuality. So there's variation, but broadly, you know, it's, it feels like we're still really, we're like a bunch of teenagers just figuring it all out, which makes sense because, you know, um, patriarchy and, and whatnot. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the, the other topic I just wanted to get on before we wrap up, and this is a big topic, so I don't even really know how to go into it, but I've read, you've got great content on your website and I know you used to publish a journal. I don't think you published that anymore. Is that correct? You still have it? Mal? Mal. Yeah. Yeah. I found, um, 
a piece, which I think was from a few years ago, because I was looking for something on um, what we've discussed, you know, this sort of hetero-pessimism, hetero-fatalism, you know, however you want to term it, this sort of widespread reassessment of, of heterosexuality that I think is happening, particularly for a lot of women of our generation and younger. Mm-hmm. Um, I found an article actually by a woman who I know wrote a book recently called Abolish the Family, Sophie Lewis. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about hetero-fatalism, but also I think the broader context was talking about the links between capitalism and sexuality. And I, you've touched on capitalism a little bit in our conversation. Again, I know it's so, so broad, but the reports that I did find about, you know, young people saying that they don't, they're disinterested in sex so much of it was because they felt they didn't have time to explore sex because they needed to stay focused so they could get on track career wise so that they could survive in our dystopian economy. Um, (laughs) There is clearly such a link between sexual pleasure, you know, the idea of you know, in many ways, sexual pleasure is like a hedonistic pursuit, right? As you say, it's it's something that we feel very unwell if we don't pursue, but equally we don't need it to survive. So it gets pushed to the side. Mm. Um, I just wondered if you had any any thoughts on that. Obviously, the global economy right now is pretty scary and people are feeling pretty strapped for time, strapped for resources. How do you think that that plays into the way we approach our sexual relationships or, or our sexuality, mm. as you say? That is, it's uh, a big one. <laughs> it's, it's excellent, though. I'm loving this. It, I love, I love sitting down, pondering big topics like this, saying something, and then hearing myself talk and be like, "Oh, damn! I should have said." <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you can't say it all in one conversation, no. but it does. It does seem to me, you know, when I talk to my mum, for example, she was a part of quite a liberated generation living in London in the late seventies, mid late eighties, sort of. You know, they were, the way she talks about the way people approach relationships and sexuality, again, a very liberated subset of of culture at that time, but just a lot more playful, a lot more free. And I think that was partly through the fact that they weren't so stressed about money all the time. I mean, bad era for the British economy, Thatcherism, but less pressure to have a career and be, you know, Mm. buy a home. Like there was just less, you know, always a sense you could just get a job or go on the dole. And there was no shame to that. So maybe pursuing sex and relationships and just kind of those pleasurable aspects of your life was a little bit less fraught. I feel like there's a lot of guilt associated with people talk about relationships and sex in such a transactional way now, as you said, so much of it is to do with like, it feels like it's very shaped by market forces. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I think, okay, a few themes come up for me as I'm just trying to um, wrap my head around it. Um, One is probably the fact that we live in a knowledge economy Mm. and we use really, I mean, technically we're like, and I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but especially in the modern world, and I presume this is this, this is like your experience with your work too, to some extent. It's like this is everything. The brain, the mind is everything. And then yeah. we use everything else to really put it back in the mind so that it it comes out yeah. with things. And I think mm. it it's like an over indexing of mm. 
I don't know, education or trying to prepare people to for the workforce, whatever. But it is focused on the brain, on the mind. Mm. And that dis- there, I think that feeds a, a type of disconnect from the body, mm. which, which is the, I mean, let's say in the context of sex per se, like specifically, like arousal can start from the mind, but it's a physical experience. Like sure. very often pleasure, when we say pleasure, we don't necessarily mean pleasure in the mind. It's the body. And yeah. I think it's that disconnect that you make money with your head and everything else is what happens to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one theme, which I feel like we're experiencing. And yeah, we're, we're, very, just, we're very disembodied people and then on top of that as you say sort of like the economic prerogative to constantly be cerebral and intellectual we're just constantly disembodied by holding our phones all the time and existing in virtual space we're so disconnected from our material surroundings yeah and I also think there's another one which is that because there is no space for um everything relating to sex when you're growing up I think maybe maybe kids growing up these days are slightly different. I don't actually have access to that. Like if my friends with kids have babies, so it's like too early to tell, but it's, uh, I think there is, um, uh, I actually have a friend who has, um, teenagers, three teenage boys. I'm thinking about it now. And she, um, always taught, like when we, when we catch up about life, she tells me how she gives them a lot of, um, uh, either books or materials to read about sexuality, um, sexuality of the different bodies, the experience, uh, um, like meditation, the practice, sex as a practice, things like this. No one spoke to me about this when I was a teenager, ever. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think there is an element of us keeping ourselves busy as long as we don't have to go there, because that's a very uncomfortable space. There's a lot of discomfort when you have to. Mm-hmm experience um your like you, you want to explore your curiosity or sexuality or desire i think there's mm-hmm. we're clumsy and we don't like feeling clumsy so we just avoid it i think i'm projecting a lot but that was that marks a lot of my sort of coming of age in my early 20s where mm-hmm. i was like i'm gonna hustle and work all the time just mm-hmm. so i don't feel uncomfortable as a yeah body which desires with my body which wants pleasure or is curious or makes a mistake there is a lot of i think there are a lot of layering there um but capitalism is definitely has um a big role in how we perceive our sexuality and how we act like how we react to it because it rewards other things like the system we've built and we keep building rewards, certain behaviors. And, mm. you know, the monkey brain in all of us seeks those behaviors. You're rewarded when you're busy, when you wake up at 4 a.m., go for a run, talk about it. <laughs> but you're not rewarded when you share the amazing about the amazing sex you had or how you discovered mm. a new masturbation practice. If anything, mm. usually are like, Ugh, what? Mm. Um, so I think it, it does 
it does reward certain things, but also exactly because we're so cerebral and intellectually busy, I think mm. we have the opportunity to find other paths and justify them with logic and go there. That's what I've done. Um, right. I think a lot of our content strategy follows that too. Like we want to build, we want to provide a perspective that doesn't necessarily have to serve a purpose of having knowledge about something, but it can inspire you, you know, it mm-hmm. can, it can inspire you to think in a different way and to yeah. question and to just sit a little bit with something and be like, mm, how does this make me feel? I think it yeah. goes back to curiosity. It's exactly sure. because we're so cerebral. We can we can use that instead of just sitting down and being like, oh, I wish I was more embodied. Damn, <laughs> too bad. You can use the fact we're so heavily in our minds and be like, okay, I can be intellectually curious about this and explore it in that way and see where it takes me. Um, and usually... When you follow your curiosity, you find so much about yourself that is inside you. You just need to start. Yeah, that's certainly been my route into my body has always been through my brain. Um, And, you know, maybe that's a um, a logical way of doing it, but that's the culture I've grown up in and, and like the way I've been conditioned, but certainly like reading and, um, conversation has enabled me to then develop practices that have nothing to do with reading and conversation. And I just, um, just listening to you talk, I was thinking about, you know, there's been a huge re-evaluation of our relationship with work Mm. um, in the last few years, which is something I used to write about a lot. Um, And maybe now we're on the cusp of that similar shift with sex and sexuality you know that in a few years things that now currently seem a bit unconventional or radical will become much more commonplace it certainly feels that way to me that something is is a paradigm shift yeah 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 I think it's just not a big deal like I don't want to minimize it for anyone but I do think that sometimes we overthink certain things and what is easy to forget is that everyone does have sexuality in them just because we all hide it doesn't mean it doesn't exist and Mm -hmm. it takes like a few people to step and share for Mm -hmm. everyone to start wondering what their experience actually is and i i think Mm -hmm. to a great extent the pandemic did that um force that because we all like when you're isolated and to a great extent confined um Mm. you have to face all decisions you've made by inertia following what society sort of and when i say society it's not like some evil gods you know it's just we are all a part of it but there is there are certain streams and currents that we all follow and i think i personally saw a lot of a lot of those i'm like why am i even doing this again yeah (laughs) what am i waiting for and Mm -hmm. i think 
I think that's one of the reasons why the paradigm you're talking about probably is so strong because it was yeah I mean I think it I think the pandemic played a huge role in um, people reassessing parenthood that's for sure Mm. (laughs) whether you were in the house with children or you were watching someone in the house with children you know um, I think a lot of people came out of that and thought "Mm, maybe not what I want after all Mm. Um, anyway uh, our our time has come to a close but I feel like we've covered a lot of ground there's always more to cover but this was this was a great start so thank you so so much for making the time to do it and um, yeah I think it's really important what what you're doing and uh, thank you for doing it. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to be here for the thoughtful and curious questions. I really appreciate it. No, it's really a lot. I mean, it's really stuff that's really been percolating in my brain for a long time, even though, you know, I actually live quite a conventional life when it comes to sexuality. I, I'm always thinking about these sort of broader shifts and, and really interested in the ways that they're, changing things and always particularly interested in the way they're changing things for women. So, um, yeah, it's a really pl- a pleasure to discuss it with someone who's, who's done a lot of thinking and a, and a lot of taking a lot of action on, on moving the needle. Um, so yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs>